There's a story that's been circulating around the last 10 years or so that relates the experience of a man by the name of David Hagler, who at the time was a program director for a community sports organization in Colorado. He was driving a hot little sports car and was stopped for speeding. Hagler was sure he was not going as fast as other cars, and he did what every self-respecting man would do. He tried to reason his way out of a ticket. First, he begged for mercy. I I usually don't speed. This is going to infect my insurance, which probably meant it was not the first time. The officer wasn't moved and started to write the ticket. And then he pleaded for justice. He said, listen, other cars were passing me. They were going faster than me. This is not fair. He buttered the officer up, telling him he recognized he was just doing his job. And he promised he would take this as a warning and be more careful. Maybe the most reasonable thing to do might be to just give him a warning. The officer didn't budge. He finally challenged the officer's judgment. This can't be because I was going fast. You just, you just thought I must be going fast because I had a fast-looking car. Nothing moved the, the officer. And as he headed in the ticket, he said, you are totally free to dispute this, but you'll have to do it in court. Hagler left the scene with a ticket and a full-blown sense of victimitis And, okay, this isn't stated anywhere, but I'm thinking he probably consoled himself by determining that the officer had just picked on him because he was jealous of his car. Right, guys? So he got it over with and paid the ticket, assumed that was the end of the story. Several months later, Hagler was the umpire in a community football league game, and as the first batter walked up to the plate, he had to do a double take. Yep. It was the police officer who had given him the ticket. The batter had already recognized Hagler, and so as he stepped up to the plate, he put on his friendliest smile and said, so how did the thing with the ticket turn out? Without missing a beat, Hagler looked at him and said, let's just say you'd do well to swing at every pitch. (laughs) Am I the only one who said yes when I read that? It's so fitting, it must be fake, right? I... I know I'm not the only one because how how widely it was circulated. Deep inside our hearts is a longing, a demand for justice, fairness, with just a little dose of revenge thrown in maybe, and probably with a lot more self-righteous posture than we want to acknowledge. We expect, rightly so, that those who are in positions of leadership are there to see that justice will be done. But increasingly, we see leaders using their positions for their own benefit. And when we get into places where we can make a difference, we begin to realize that it's a little bit more complex than we thought it was. Just think parenting. We, we, we so want to make sure we, we treat all of our kids fairly, equally, right? But how does that look when our kids were young and we were going through that struggle? LaDonna was talking with a close friend who was in the same boat. And, and this friend said to her, you know, I heard something recently that has really helped me. It doesn't have to be equal to be fair. That is true, isn't it? If equal is what we're after in raising our kids, it's it's impossible. And it's actually not what best helps each kid develop. And who determines what's equal? It's never as simple as it appears on the surface. Today, we're coming to a section in the book of Revelation that has I think appropriately have been called the most tragic of all scenes in the book. Tragic 
perhaps the most appropriate word to describe it, but it's a section in which we see the promise of justice complete, fully, and finally. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15 and 16. This section is a section that makes many of us not want to read the book because we see it as all about judgment. And judgment is so negative. We'd rather just avoid it. For some of us, it may be the section of the Bible that epitomizes the barrier in our minds to the God of the Bible. But I hope you'll hang in there with us today to see that these chapters, gruesome as the images are, are actually all about hope. About the assurance that the cry in our hearts for justice will someday be a reality forever. And a renewed awareness that there is more to justice than we often recognize and that the only solution is a God who is on the throne. In this center section of the book, chapters 12 to 15, we have three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and now finally, seven bowls. They are cycles that, that progress in their intensity, moving from more passive judgment. Okay, if you want to have it your way, I will let you experience the consequences of your actions. To today, well, definitive, active, full-dose judgment poured out directly by God's angels from sacred bowls from God's temple. Bowls that were instruments of worship. How are we to understand these cycles? Well, I, I think the way to understand these three cycles of seven is to understand them in light of how we are told to understand them in the book. In, in the introduction to our chapters today, actually, chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is complete. What does he say he saw in heaven? He said he saw a sign. This is the third sign we've seen in these chapters describing the three cycles, cycles of judgment. Sign one in chapter 12 was a woman about to give birth, which means this whole scene is not just and not primarily about judgment. It's about hope because the one to whom she's going to give birth is Jesus. It's about being saved from judgment and from the injustice in which we live. Sign two. A dragon ready to devour the baby. What's a sign? In, in the book of Revelation, in apocalyptic literature, a sign, this, this is not a directional sign. Vancouver, 1160 kilometers. A sign, in, in the way it's used in the Bible, is a symbol. You see a sign with a red symbol, hand on it, or symbolic hand, you know what it means. It means stop, right? That's a sign, a symbol. Two signs that talk about the essence of the human struggle. The reality of a dragon who deceives, accuses, and, powerfully, uh, and is powerfully violent. And what God has already done to deal with the struggle. A child, the child, born to set us free. And now, a third sign. How the issue will finally and fully be dealt with. Complete. A sign is a symbol, and, and so it's probably best to see this whole section as a symbolic portrayal of how God works in history to bring it all together His way. Let, let's, let's read chapter 15, which gives the introduction to the last cycle 
of judgment. Chapter 15, beginning at verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, golden bowls, filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Okay, let's stop right there for a breather. (laughs) Some of us already stopped, right? Put up the barrier in our minds. This passage passage forces us to talk about a subject we'd rather avoid. The wrath of God. We want to talk about love and hope. Not wrath and judgment, but We have to talk about it, first of all, because our passage forces us to talk about it. Actually, it began talking about wrath way back in chapter 14, verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on the forehead, they too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. And then verse 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Now in chapter 15 and 16, four more times, wrath, 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 wrath. We read it in verse 1, chapter 15, verse 7 says, Then one of the four living angels gave to the seven angels seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. And we read it again in chapter 16, verse 1. It's down in chapter 16. Verse 7 again. Bowls, worship bowls, repurposed strategically and intentionally for wrath. Daryl Johnson, in his uh, series of teachings on the book of Revelation, says, what are we to do with this word wrath? One thing we cannot do is dismiss it as being unique to the last book of the Bible, or I would add, as unique to the Old Testament, implying that if we turn to the other books, we do not encounter the wrath of God. For the fact is, wrath is mentioned all over the New Testament. We come up against the wrath of God in every book in the New Testament. So what do we do with the wrath of God? Well, from these two chapters, we're going to be talking about three questions. Number one, how can I get my head around the wrath of God? Number two, what am I to know? Sorry, question one is how, how can I get my head around a God of wrath? Chapter two, or the second question is what am I to know about the wrath of God? And number three, how can I live in hope in light of the wrath of God? So number one, let's talk about that first question. How can I get my head around a God 
of wrath. That used to be a big hang-up for a lot of people. My God is a God of love, not a God of wrath, right? Really? If that is my view of God, all I have is a wussy, sentimental, anemic God. And I have never really loved. Anyone who ever has had a child that was bullied, a parent that was murdered, a spouse that was treated unfairly, a friend that was killed by a careless driver that from our perspective got off scot-free, knows that true love includes anger. When the one we love is violated. If God is truly a God of love, powerful love, deep and passionate and committed love, he has to be a God of wrath. Not an irrational, uncontrollable, reactionary, angry that anger that, that we often see and show, but righteous anger that we so badly want someone to show for us. In order to get our heads around a God of wrath, there are three words we need to understand. And, and I'd like to just give us a very simple and clear summary definition of these words. We can't understand the bulls of wrath until we understand these words. Number one, justice. We use that word a lot, don't we? What is justice? Well, simply justice is the world ordered right. Everything ordered right. Now, we could easily get off into the weeds, stuck in the muck of deciding exactly what that looks like. We'll all have somewhat different definitions of that or descriptions of that. We'll all have different things that we think need to be done to achieve it. But what we all want is a world ordered right. And we all recognize that injustice is not just of individual actions. It is, what's the buzzword today? It is systemic. We won't get into that today. That's next week. We do always go to systemic when we want to address injustice. And, 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 and what's God's perspective on that? Well, for today, let's just leave it that we can all agree that justice is a world-ordered right. Wrath. What is wrath? The best definition of wrath as it applies to God is, I think, is from Leon Morris, an Australian biblical scholar. Wrath, he says, is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. His passionate and permanent and very controlled opposition to all that is not ordered right. John is not referring to that intense emotional flare-up of anger which we humans are known for. John is not referring to irrational passion so frequently found in the gods of the ancient mythology. God is serious, passionately and permanently serious about all that is not ordered right. He loves his creation so much that he will deal with, will destroy everything that refuses to come into that rightful order that brings fairness, peace, and thriving for all. Let's talk about judgment. Judgment is simply God's dealing with. Taking out finally and fully everything and everyone that's been ruined, or that has ruined right order under him. If, if you've ever had any kind of treatment for cancer or a loved one that has, you know that the goal of treatment, whether it's chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, targeted therapy, the goal is to destroy all of the mutant cells that grow and quickly take over all of the healthy cells. Destroy them. So the good cells can thrive. And, and you know the emotions attached 
to that big question you're left with at the end and forever after. Did they really get it all? That's the judgment of God out of his love for his good and rightly ordered creation, destroying ultimately and finally every cell that detracts from, that distorts, and that disables the good. Isn't that what we really want? Isn't that the God we really want? That, that helps us to understand what at first might seem, well, rather appalling. As we have gone through this book in almost every scene, we have these outbursts of worship, poetic and majestic scenes of praise. In these two chapters, on the bowls of wrath are two outbursts of worship because of the wrath of God. How vulgar is that? But listen to him in light of these three words, justice, wrath, and judgment that we just talked about. Chapter 15, verse 3. Listen to that song of worship again. They sang the song of God's servant Moses, son of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What causes them to worship? Justice is finally being done. Finally, things are being dealt with. Who is it that's singing this song? It's those people from chapter 14, verse 12, who have patiently endured injustice, persecution, and have hung in there and remained faithful. We're going to come back to that uh, towards the end of our teaching this morning. And then chapter 15, as the bowls are being poured out, there's this little interlude in, in verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You are what? You are just in these judgments. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What causes them to worship? The justice the fairness in the way God deals with the word world-ordered wrong. And who is it that's praising God? First of all, it's, the, it's his agents of judgment, the angels who since the fall of humanity have said to God, how long can you let it go on? Why don't you deal with it? And two, it says it's the altar responded. What does that mean? I think what it's saying is that those who were martyred were persecuted and as we saw back in chapter 16 in the op or chapter 6 in the opening of this section, the scene of the seals, what is their cry? How long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And they're now singing a new song. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. One of our big concerns is justice for the victims. Folks, that is what is on the heart of God. And that is what we know we will get from the God who loves us so passionately. I don't know about you, but for me, I don't have to think too deeply to get my head around a God of wrath. But if we can get our heads around a God of wrath, the idea of a God of wrath, what is it that we need to know about the wrath 
of God. Well, there's two things. First thing we need to know is that you can't hide from the wrath of God. There's no hiding. There's one word that's repeated three times that forces us to come to terms with that. It's the word right from the very first word of the, verse of the chapter, 15 verse 1, complete, total, and devastating. Complete, final, which is what we want, like the destroying of cancer cells, but, but this is really complete. 15 verse 1, because with them the wrath of God is complete. Verse 8. I think it's verse 8. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And then down in chapter 16, verse 17. It is done. How complete is it? Well, in the judgment of the seals, we see that a quarter of all things were destroyed. Devastating, but limited, restrained. The trumpets, it was, it was a third of all things that are destroyed. Restraint again, but getting stronger. And the bowls of wrath, it is complete. Everything. Let's read the chapter. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every, every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments. We read that. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of the heavens, because of their pain and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle. On the great day of God Almighty. And then Jesus speaks. Look. I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. So as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowls into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the plague, was this quake. We're not going to get into analyzing each detail here. The main point is that God's wrath involves complete, total destruction. It will include everything that has been tainted by evil, complicit in evil, and it won't be pretty. All of the earth, the sea, even the sun, all of creation. There's something I can't help thinking about when I think of these bowls of wrath. I, I lived for several years in the, in the Golden Horseshoe area of Ontario, the heart of, among other things, Canada's steel industry. 
Whenever there's news on TV about steel mills, what is it you see? There's always that picture of a huge vat of molten steel pouring out, right? If you've worked around hot steel or in a, in a steel mill or a welding shop or with melted plastic or even been around big vats of boiling fat, these, these bowls are the thing of nightmares. That's, that's the picture in Revelation 16 as the bowls of wrath are poured out. Total, awful, complete. There is no hiding from the wrath of God. So where does that leave me? How can we say the wrath of God is about hope when it destroys everything? Well, there are three things we have to see in this passage that, that puts the rest of the picture together for us. Who is it that's initiating this whole thing? All of this is controlled by the one who is very much in control, the one who was standing on the throne, the lamb, the slaughtered, sacrificed, slain lamb who is opening the seals. And why was he sacrificed, slain before the foundation of the world, God says? To drink the cup, as he said it on the way to the cross, the cup of God's wrath in our place. Paul puts it wonderfully in, in, in Romans chapter 5. He, uh, he says in, in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And what is it these people are singing in the worship scene? This chapter starts with it. Uh, chapter 15, verse 3, it says, The song of Moses, that great song of deliverance after going through the Red Sea and the song of the Lamb, delivered from God's wrath by the blood of the Lamb. And what is it? What is the line that is repeated three times about God's wrath in this passage? It is complete. It is done. It is finished. What is it that John writes in his gospel account of Jesus, his last words on the cross? John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is done. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Do you think John could write the words in Revelation 15 and 16 without thinking about the words he had written, had heard, had seen in real life? Jesus uttering those very words. Do you not think that is, that is what John wants us to remember as he writes this vision of the wrath of God? Daryl Johnson puts it this way, at the cross of Jesus, God's burning zeal for the right, coupled with God's perfect hatred for evil, came together in his holy love to save sinners. Which means that what John really wants us to know, the full story of God's wrath, is that I cannot hide from the wrath of God, but I can hide in the God of wrath, I can hide in it through the one who absorbed his wrath for me 
There is no refuge, says Johnson, from the judging God, but there is refuge in the judging God. Would you not say that that's what it means to be hostaged by hope? Another way to see that is, 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 is to experience God's judgment. You have to go around the cross. You have to turn away from the love of God. You have to reject the sacrifice of Jesus. You have to refuse the tugging of the Holy Spirit on your heart. God's wrath is real, and we know it. His judgment is just. We have to get our heads around that, and we must not try to find ways to avoid it, because we don't have to. Because into the world, he has sent another option. Have you entered that? Seen Jesus as the one who has taken that for you on the cross? Let's look at our final question. How can I live in hope in light of the wrath of God? This chapter gives us three answers to that question really quickly. The first answer comes from the first part of our passage. We're going to come back to chapter beginning of chapter 15. Standing by the sea, the final barrier to the presence of God. Not yet there, but waiting for that barrier to be removed are those who have, well, chapter 14, verse 12, the people of God who have patiently endured injustice, who have, as it says, kept his commands, remained faithful to Jesus. They are not there yet, but in this scene, they are seeing it and they're saying it is worth it to hang in there. One of the things that LaDonna has bemoaned over the years is that she is not athletic. Okay, I, I will resist the urge to flesh that out. But several years ago, she changed her tune. As I was beginning to suffer some osteoarthritis, and some of which certainly was a result of sports injuries, as I would come home with a badly injured ankle or a broken whatever, she started to say, you know, I've always wished I was more athletic, but at this age, when you and all your friends are whining about your pains, I'm thinking I'm the lucky one. None of my joints hurt. <laughs> and sometimes she will shake her head and say to me, was it really worth it? And you know, I've, I've come to the point of asking that myself. And I ask myself, why did I do it? Why did I push myself to the point of risking injury, knowing that going for that ball against a big guy might lead to that broken nose? Why did I do it? I know why I did it. How was it that even when my body was worn out and tired, I could push myself one more notch, crank it up one notch higher? It was because I was envisioning myself standing getting the championship medal hung around my neck at the end of the tournament. At that time, that seemed worth it. Folks, I don't know what it is you think you are having to endure. I don't know in what way you are at a point of going against all of your own feelings, your desires, and giving up. But I do know that this vision of the wrath of God being complete against everything that is uh, wrong, is here so that you can say, see it and say, okay, I will, I will violate, I will resist all of my urges to give in and give up because I want to be standing there on that day with the one who has died and has freed me 
and has brought me into that place of love. What is the win? What is the win for me? Folks, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the win is simply staying, standing. If you're struggling with that, will you reach out to someone and talk about it? The second two answers on how to how this vision of, of God's wrath allows and actually calls me to live and hope is in the words of Jesus himself. Chapter 16, verse 15. The only, the only time in this whole scene that Jesus himself speaks, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Blessed. Blessed. Not cursed. Is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. So number two, this vision of God's wrath is here so that, that we will make sure that we stay awake. What does it mean to stay awake? It, it, it means to be alert, to not, get, to not get deceived by my own desires, lulled to sleep by paths that just seem easier. It means to realize that there is one who knows his doom is sealed and his goal is to, to draw you in with him. His tools are deception and accusation and power messing with your head, folks. It's, it's tiring to stay awake. It takes effort, constant effort to stay alert. Often fighting with my own head and my body. And one of the ways we get deceived in this is to think that, you know, God would not want me to have to work so hard. What God really wants is to give us the strength by His Spirit. The vision that it's worth it. That it's doable to stay awake. Is there any way you've been lulled and are becoming deceived in just giving in and giving up? Will you look forward to the vision of a world that's right, rightly ordered? Stay awake and remain clothed. We don't have time to explore everything this word picture refers to in the New Testament. In, in the book of Revelation, we're told about God clothing his new people with white linen, like Jesus, purity, and righteousness, as the old gospel song writer puts it, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Clothes are, are the outward actions, the things that people see about us and experience from us that are in keeping with the character Jesus wants to develop in us. Allowing life and God to chip off and take off anything that is the cause of the wrath of God coming because I have escaped the wrath of God and will be standing with Jesus. I'll feel pretty awkward and ashamed and look out of place if I haven't allowed Jesus to produce those qualities in me. And that's what Paul talks about in the book of Colossians chapter 12. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, Patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you over all these virtues, put on love. In another place, Galatians chapter 5, this is the same thing. The fruit of the Spirit showing outwardly. Why do I develop these qualities? Out of fear of God's wrath? No, out of grateful joy that Jesus has taken on the wrath that I was due. And in the peace and power of God's Spirit in my spirit, Helping me see that because God's wrath is complete, I am 
hostaged by hope. It really is well with my soul. We're going to invite you to share communion together. If you have it at home, and we're going to do it here. And uh, for those of us who are here in the auditorium. And as we prepare to sh share communion together and listen to that song, It Is Well With My Soul, would you ask yourself a couple of questions? Am I living in the hope of holy wrath? Am I living in the vision of justice complete and giving myself to just keeping on and not giving up? Am I not allowing myself to be lulled to sleep by a shallow and, and easy believism? Am I working with God in developing the clothes of righteousness that he wants me to put on display? Are you hostaged by hope?